for our season three episodes here. You can watch video unedited for the episode you're about to hear. Look to the link for the video on the post associated with this episode at philosophyimprov.com. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. Hey, I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, your philosophy guide today, trying to learn a little about improv. And I am Bill Arnett, your improv docent, ready to get some tickets to the Philosophy Museum. And our guest today, which category do you fit in? Both? Introduce yourself. <laughs> I'm Jeremy Richards. I'm an author, improviser, and executive coach, and a philosophical dilettante, to be oh, honest. There we go. Okay. All right. And you are approaching us because you have this book, The Accomplished Creative, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome, Forge Courage, and Tap into Limitless Creativity. That's some high... I mean, With the appropriate hyperbole vocals. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I tend to be very suspicious of self-help thing, but if it's self-help through improv, I mean, that's sort of what we're doing, I guess. I would call it experimental personal development for people who are sick of self-help. Ooh, I, that could be a whole new niche. This is, this is ex- <laughs> experimental self-development. Person- yeah. <laughs> we got to package it in a way that the, the demographic that would never read a self-help book would suddenly be all, but I would read. Or that has read them all and can basically <laughs> predict what the messaging is going to be based on the title yes, or the subtitle yes. and, <laughs> and is just, just sick of it. So I'm skewering the genre. I'm skewering myself. I'm trying to dig into something a little bit deeper and occasionally more esoteric and even satirical at points. And you, Very cool. Very cool. And your Whether ch- or not that's successful is up to the reader. And your chapter five, Hemlock and Key, let's make our brains hurt with some philosophy. Can you sum up for us briefly so we can figure out what the the philosophical concept should be today, how philosophy bakes into this? Right. So I'm just short of a philosophy major in undergrad and, you know, studied Nietzsche specifically in grad school and wrote a musical about Friedrich Nietzsche. So I have Mm. this preoccupation with philosophy uh, throughout my career, especially bringing in the creative and the philosophical. So I thought I at least had to dedicate a chapter to that in this book, ostensibly about imposter syndrome and creativity and giving myself just a chapter was a bit of a self trap as well. So the philosophical concepts covered in that chapter, I touch on Socrates, I touch on the Stoics and the existentialists, and then dabble in a little bit of other concepts here and there. So It's basically a smorgasbord that you can choose from because I very glibly said we're going to crash through the entire selective history of philosophy in one chapter and just sort of pick and choose to see what suits our needs. Bill, I know we've we've brought up on this show both Socrates slash Plato and Nietzsche occasionally, but have we ever have we ever talked about the intersection between the two? No intersection. And and Nietzsche is, you know, I mean, we all know that God is dead and that, you know, and that's, that's, that's about 98% of general population's knowledge of, of Nietzsche. If there is knowledge, and if it's anything more than zero, it's that. I would love to hear about the intersection. How did the ancients, as I often say, how did the ancients view the intersection between a, an ancient and a modern person? Well, how did the modern person view the intersection of the ancients and contemporary philosopher? Well, I, I want to punt to Jeremy. Do you remember any <laughs> of this stuff about the, like the artistic Socrates, Nietzsche's love-hate relationship? With Socrates as a as a past idol, 
Yeah, Socrates was not very forgiving to the poets in the Republic. You know, they they famously were not fated well and considered to be deceptive largely. Nietzsche in The Birth of Tragedy drew a lot on Greek philosophy, especially into the Dionysian revelry that we consider and the Apollonian more tempered counterweight to that. And that was his entree into ethico-aesthetic approach for Nietzsche that he kind of later renounced in a way. So he was constantly revising his approaches. So that makes it a little bit messy as well. But yeah, Nietzsche was heavily influenced by ancient philosophers early on and then sort of moved into a a much more what people would say heretical, (laughs) (laughs) idiosyncratic approach. What specifically did he toss overboard? So Nietzsche, if we can be so easily, Nietzsche actually started as a philologist, like somebody who's is studying ancient culture, ancient languages, ancient speech, and, you know, was very invested in what words these folks were using, what the, what the attitudes were. This distinction between the Apollonian and the Dionysian that Jeremy just pointed out was sort of a, when you look at ancient art, some of it seemed like it was, you know, Jim Morrison gathered around the fire, channel of the spirits, some sort of, that, that would be the Dionysian. Okay. Liquor wouldn't hurt. Sure. And the Apollonian is, is more the, what took over this sort of restrained beauty. Oh, the form is is so shapely. You could see this is the reverse of the rock and roll revolution. That before that, it was, oh, the classical, that's that's where all the culture is. And then the rock and rollers come on. We got to rediscover the Dionysian. And so Nietzsche was making somewhat of a similar thing. And Socrates was his, even though he was, you know, a rebel in his time, but he was not a rock and roll rebel. He was a, sure. all you bastards think you know things. The chaos of his sure. opponents, his sophist opponents who all didn't have clear values like lawyers basically using the tools of philosophy to argue whatever they were paid to argue that sort of chaos no we got to all focus on virtue we got to transcend the sensual the things of of our immediate appearances all that sort of stuff and you know so that goes right in line with the stuff that Nietzsche was then reacting to in his time of the uptight part of God is dead is that this unified Let's all transcend toward a oneness and a goodness that everybody can look to. No, that's kind of all bullshit. We have to create our own values using, as Jeremy was describing, this creative self-development. Sure. Oh, in improv terms, I guess you could say Del Close was probably the the Apollo. And I don't know who would be the... Del Close would be the Dionysus. Sorry. And I don't know who would be the, the Apollo might be Sharna Halpern. Maybe Keith Johnstone in some ways of being more... Me. You? Are you more of the... <laughs> yes. I would say the, the UCB manual is the Apollyon, Apollonian. Apollonian. Is the more tab A slot B, or at least it gets the dig on it, is that it's, it's very tab A slot B. But in the improv world, there are certainly players who are more, I would refer to them sometimes as poets and architects. And, you know, while the architect certainly appreciates design and whatnot, they've got a ruler, you know, and they're not afraid to use it. And there are some architects who are pretty brutal and are are glorified structural engineers, just as there are some poets who can make very powerful illusions and metaphors. And there are some who put ink in their bottoms and just spray it out on canvases. Yeah. In in the book, I talk about the Will Hines and and Billy Merritt book, uh, Robot, Pirate, Ninja, which is another great. So obviously you have the structural analytical robots, which I kind of tend toward, and then the free flying pirates and then the ideal synthesis would be the ninja. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So that's sort of looking at what the the artistic Socrates would be. Somebody who has this critical spirit, who's trying to firm us up and keep us from just going every which way, right? That's the criticism of the 60s hippie, is that we need more focus than that. We need something to actually drive us and not just leave us lying around drugged up all day. But can we do this in a way that's not uptight, that actually takes into account the multiplicity and glory and multidirectional character of art? Okay. And how does this tie into... I'm dying to know how philosophy and imposter syndrome overlap. <laughs> yeah, I might have sketched something that's not actually relevant to Jeremy's book, but I was trying. <laughs> it, it absolutely all is. I mean, there is this concept of being self-created individual, that you're improvising your identity versus being predetermined or intended to be something for the sake of others Sure, as this virtuous, perfect being. And then... We get to a point in our lives where, oh, maybe I've just been making it up all along and I'm an imposter. I'm, I'm a fraud in relation to how others might perceive me. And that's where the kind of crisis comes in. And Nietzsche thought that being a self-divided individual was a virtue and often played up that bifurcation as something that was playful and creative. Sure. I, I could also see the, I'm not sure if this is necessarily straight up imposter syndrome or just general lack of self-esteem or self-identity. But I think I have definitely met some very creative people who struggle with those kinds of things, but it also means they're never satisfied and then they can are always re-examining their work and always improving and making it better or at least changing it. And so there might be something, there may be a, a degree of this isn't perfect yet, which to the outsider might seem, oh, come on now, this is, I think this is okay. But to them, it's like, no, 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 this could always be better. This could always be better. And that perhaps that helps them do better. Right. It's the Paul Valere idea that art is never finished. It's only abandoned. Yes. And then, <laughs> and then Jacques Derrida said that to release a work of art is like to release an animal into the wild. Yeah. And it's foolish to think that we have control over that animal or that it will ever fully follow us. And so there's also that weird existential idea of, oh, the art just kind of came through me. and especially in improv, you know, we feel kind of possessed in the moment and sometimes don't even remember what happened. And if that's the case, if I'm just a vessel for it, then am I really an authentic artist or creator? Yeah, there are definitely, and I'm sure you've probably experienced this. And so I think Mark, we we haven't talked about this. There are different theaters and different groups and improvs, improv scenes around the country, around the world. And some of them tend to focus on the product side of improv if we're not hey, if these shows don't make money they're not they have no value and there's other people who are more technical and more you know how do we push the boundaries of the art And there's other people who are more like big tent everybody's welcome heart 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 we're gonna love each other through the work and and almost more of a almost religious spiritual community <laughs> that that certainly happens as well yeah at unexpected productions where i've been for about 21 years we tend to do both we have theater sports you know, famously founded by Keith Johnstone and our artistic director studied with Keith for a long time. And so that is the more fun, playful, competitive thing that packs the audience late night raucous. But we also do improvise Shakespeare and film noir and Chekhov and all of the other pretentious forms of theater in an improvisational manner. (laughs) Those are the shows that get like 12 people in the audience at, you know, 7 p.m. on a Sunday. Yeah. But the players like doing them. You know, yeah, it's very self-satisfying. Is there a journal of progressive improvs that you could submit your uh, scenes to so that, you know, if you're trying to push the boundaries, how do you know 
somebody else hasn't pushed the boundaries that same way before. It seems like it's, it's you know, unless you've got some sort of communicative apparatus like science, then how do you know you're actually being cutting edge? Is cutting edge now actually just the same thing as was cutting edge in the 60s and people just don't remember? That's very possible. I mean, <laughs> I might say it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I was going to say that there, there are also different edges to cut. And as Jeremy mentioned, some genre shows, some improvised medical drama, improvised this, improvised that. There are people who would say that that's uh, not edgy enough or not pushing the boundaries enough. So you're always going to find people that fall somewhere on that spectrum and the endpoints get pretty far away from each other as, <laughs> as to what, what counts. Where does art, where does entertainment stop and art begin or how much overlap is there? Is there any overlap? Just having that conversation gets us pretty in a pretty pretentious place. Yeah. Whenever any critic writes a review of a, an improv show, they spend the first half of the article, at least talking about how hard it is to review improv. Yes. Which I, I, well, I don't know about you, Jeremy, but I completely disagree with that notion. And we should be able to judge any art on its own sake, unless it's children who we have to give latitude towards. I think theater critics should be able to say, I really enjoyed the show. The the improvised aspect provided this. Perhaps it didn't tickle this aspect as much as I would have liked, but it made up for it with X, made up for A, B, and C with X, Y, and Z. That's true. And some critics, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing. Some critics do have more knowledge of improv. I think those who do that have all the caveats. They're basically saying that they don't understand the, the form themselves and want to kind of cover their bases. I directed a show called The Retka years ago that was inspired by Theodore Retka, the poet. And we would have a poem by Retka or another poet like John Ashbery, who was very, you know, some obscure and hard to follow. And then the improvisers would have these kind of surreal scenes that were inspired by that. So I guess that's one of the more edgy pieces that I was involved in. And we did have a critic from the Seattle Stranger who really liked it because, you know, they're the intellectuals who get it, man, but it wasn't necessarily <laughs> popular hit. Sure. I mean, I'm not really sure how you guys can have this conversation in this environment, given that we're all trapped in an elevator right now by terrorists. And I guess, you know, unless some sort of John McClane character or something shows up, then it, it, at any point could drop. What should we talk about, Mark? I Maybe something practical about addressing the situation. You just are in, in such denial. Well, if you have an idea, I mean, I can hear the twines of the elevator splitting above us as we speak. So that existential dread is just kind of making me think that we should talk about meaning in life because what else is there? I'm not John McClane. I'm not going to just bust out of here and kill these terrorists. I am scared. I would rather talk about anything else but terrorists, to be perfectly frank. I tell you what, Mark, just to keep you happy, let's talk about terrorists. Well, I saw three of them. I saw. I was able to see, I don't know how many you saw. I saw three. I think one of them was like an intern, though. It was like two main terrorists, and the other one was taking notes and seemed kind of fumbling. So if we start, if we do have an opportunity to confront them, I would start there. Yeah. What do you think, Mark? Are you happy? We're talking about the terrorists. It was more, I mean, I don't, I feel helpless here. I've already been sort of scanning around and yes, I'm terrified beyond words. I mean, I'm in emotional denial, if not in, uh, I can acknowledge it with my speech, but I just, I'm wondering, you guys are talking about improvisation, which I know is, is something that we all love deep in our hearts. And it seems like given that these could be the last moments of our lives, we should be doing some kind of doing the improv, not just talking about you it. You want to do, you want to do elevator improv. What was John McClane, if not a supreme improviser? Okay, so maybe if one of you guys thinks like a John McClane, then that might, A, 
it'll, uh, you know, make us feel better. B, it might actually lead to some real strategies. You know, so is I've there taken a way- off my shoes? Yeah. And I've ripped my shirt. So I'm in the John McClane mindset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm in That's the good. genre of a John McClane. Yippee Kai, yippee Kai, yippee Kai. Guys, let me just step in here. We're not going to, these terrorists have guns. All right. They're terrorists. They're, this is a serious situation. We should not confront them, even if we were John McClane's and not improvise John McClane's. I think it's best to hang out here, relax, talk about anything else. It helps probably on the way. I was probably on the way. I mean, I think that one of the terrorists is trying to get through the elevator from the other side with some sort of blowtorch. So either they're going to confront us or the elevator is going to drop us to our death. So either way, we have to think about scope of control versus scope of concern. Yeah, yeah, let's let's run this. Hey, Ithizai, I'm being I'm being the guy that's that maybe is going to break in. Ithizai, terrorist number 1. I am very mad at you. I'm coming in with the guns blazing. Okay, so we've got a French Israeli German terrorist. Uh let's consider what the politics might be in terms of his interests. Is this happening? Are we doing this? Is this happening? Don't you question my ideology or my origin. I am an authentic, real person who has his own desires. And I am I am improvising in making up what I would like to do with you peoples. My wife is named Joan. I have two children. Okay. We live over on the southwest side. All right. And if either of you make it out, I want you to let her know that I love her very, very much. And tell those children to keep working hard. They know, they'll know what that means. Okay. Is can we, can we, if we're going to take this seriously, let's take this seriously. Okay. That's for the terrorists to take the message back. That's for one of you. Should, should you survive? I'm brought to tears by your plea and I'm looking at your eyes and I see that you're a person like I am with your own hopes and dreams. And I must let you free because every individual is a universe in. In him or her itself, and uh, I should not. Uh, my projects uh, should subordinate themselves to the absolute value that the individual has. Thank you, thank you. I guess I can go free. Yeah. Wow, that worked. I mean, I feel like John McClain. You didn't actually uh, contribute to that in terms. Of I mean, the- I was deferring to see if that plan worked at first, and since it immediately worked, why would I complicate it and backpedal? Or, or possibly do something to antagonize the terrorist. I don't know. Bill, do you want to do the terrorist? Because maybe, maybe the terrorist is not going to be that enlightened. Yeah. Let's try another take on the terrorist. Try, yeah. Because you, you, that, Bill, that blowtorch is making its way through. I can see the sparks coming through the elevator right now. This is what we're going to do while this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear your, you have I, a better idea. I want to hear your, your accent. Scream for help. Oh, all right. Fine. Do you remember my wife's name? Joan? Yes. Okay. And my message for the children? You love you, them very much. You rock. And. And keep on, keep, keep on, hard. keep it on, keep, keep it working on. hard. Keep don't know what hard. I mean. Don't know what I mean. Okay. All right. Now, why would why would one of us survive? Why would two of us survive and one of us? I don't not? know. I don't, I'm going to play. Your, I'm going to I'm going to do your little right. terrorist thing. I just want. All right. Gonna, I don't want to put in myself lieu okay of my message for the children. I got to be a frightened person. You can, you can, Jeremy. You can keep being John McLean, but I'm. Gonna, I'm terrified. I'm a person in an ele- ele- an elevator. I'm terrified. Look, you piece of garbage. You listen to me right now. All right. You stand in the corner and you shut up. If you do anything to mess this up, I will kill you. I will steal your wallet, find out where you live, and burn your house down. Is that clear? Hey, pal, you forgot about this. Whack, whack, whack. Rear naked choke. Passed out. Oh, 
I did I take that too far? It looks like Bill actually passed out. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad it's, it's still working. I'm only a white belt in jujitsu, so I know how to get people into chokeholds, but not necessarily how to gauge when they're actually going to. Oh my gosh. Ow. That's what Don't, John McClain would do, right? He's a violent Why guy. weren't you doing that when they were leading us to the elevator 20 minutes ago? I told you I'm a white belt. I'm, I don't know if I'm actually worthy of using my skills yet. I don't even have a stripe on my belt. You surprised the hell out of me. I mean, is it because you were in character and you, you found depths within yourself that you, you know, a confidence that you didn't think you had in the real world? Yeah. If I really felt like I was John McClane, as I did in that moment, being barefoot with a, a ripped shirt, then yeah, maybe I could bring out a part of me that could be a black belt. And I'm hoping that my fear, my characters, my characters, uh, you know, motivated you to, to rise to that height that I had a little, you know, I, I rolled to assist. Yeah. I wanted to protect you and your weakness. All right. So is that, Bill, you think that's going to work? Sure. Let's give it a try. Well, something better work because here they come. Hey, we'll stop there. Awesome. Very fun. <laughs> uh, they all died, by the way. They all died. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, oh, I was yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. that the elevator just fell at that moment as the person was trying to come in, maybe decapitated the person trying to come in, you know, just so it's a, everybody's a loser. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the only justice in the world is everyone fails in there <laughs> i like the seamless transition though yeah <laughs> that's my impatience for a scene to start oh yes um, mark has been exploring lots of soft starts it's very welcoming i'm I'm happy with it and i think it's wonderful mark it's wonderful. i like it now i wasn't sure in this whether you had come in with something bill or whether you had coordinated with jeremy about an improv lesson or jeremy just should do the improv lesson and I probably should have said that earlier if that was going to be a possibility, but it's not, it's not in my department. So I do have a lesson kind of in mind, but that's fine. Was it instantiated by what we just did? Hmm. <laughs> I, I, would, I would have to listen to the tape. I'd have to listen to the tape. So many of my exercises and, and Jeremy and concepts and things focus on the beginnings of scenes and the tops of scenes and just bu- building variety into our scenes and putting ourselves in situations between our ears situations and mental situations that we can navigate. And by navigating those, we can build our confidence to start scenes mid-conversation and do anything we want and realize that we're never cut off from our muse and never cut off from our ability to create. How do you like that? I like it. It's one of those areas, as the saying goes, you can either have 20 years of experience or one year of experience 20 times. (laughs) Well, I think, yeah. Improv is almost more extreme. It's like you have one scene of experience thousands of times. I often get, you know, students and there definitely are, are stages of, and certainly I kind of went through a number of these stages. And one of them is if I have nothing funny to say, well, then I can't contribute. Mm. And how do you burn through that? And how do you get people, so there's some imposter syndrome stuff in here right. who feel like, and again, I have techniques for doing this, but it's this whole idea of like, well, I don't know, isn't, I just don't know what to say. I'm worried that what I'm going to say isn't going to be good or isn't funny or will be judged weird and <laughs> trying to do everything we can to burn through that and get people on to the next major. <laughs> yeah, it goes to like truth and comedy, Dale Close, and try not to be funny and just be honest. It doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, so often it's not that you solve a young student's problems, you get them to a place where they see that that problem should never exist. Mm. If that may, Rather than solutions, it's like, we just make the problem go away, if that makes sense. Does that make sense, Mark? Is that a thing? I think so. <laughs> I wanted to hear what sort of what, what Jeremy has to add in sure. terms of from your improv background about that scene, for instance, or the choices that were made. I sort of imposed a bunch of choices on. (laughs) 
It's the classic trapped in an elevator by terrorists scene. Always those challenges of either advancing or expanding in classic improv terms. And when you really limit your circumstances in saying we can only advance so far, then you're left to mostly expand. And that's developing your characters. That's debating what to do, which is, can sometimes be a trap. And that's probably why I had this impulse to keep advancing external circumstances like the cables splitting or something coming through the elevator. So there was at least a ticking clock and a sense of urgency. And it wasn't just in this forever suspended, so to speak, box of improv known as the elevator in the terrorist (laughs) tower. The stuck in an elevator sitcom. Yeah, yeah, that's a classic sitcom thing too. But then we would flash back. Do you remember when we were, you know, in that other scenario in season two? Do you Um, remember when we were in an elevator last year? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To your point, then, Bill, do you mean get rid of the problem for the internal issue of the improviser or the problem in the scene? The issue for the improviser, right? The I have nothing funny to say. Therefore, I can't contribute. What should I say? It's like, well, if I convince you that. You don't need to say anything funny. You just simply need to be honest in the in the moment and that it may not be hilarious, but it won't be incorrect. Right. Well, then I have taken that, that problem away as opposed to, oh, say, here's something funny to say, you know, <laughs> acknowledging that that problem is real. You don't have anything funny to say. Therefore, you cannot contribute. Uh, I don't want to solve that. Problem. I want the problem to cease to exist, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's not the intent of the scene. And yeah, our theater is is very much entrenched in that be honest, be present, don't be funny. Sometimes where I get into trouble if I say something clever. <laughs> so I'm like, oops, sorry. My thing was to try to be like, we really are stuck in this thing. This really sucks. And I would rather not be <laughs> pretending we're not in this horrible situation. And I hope that wasn't necessarily taken as destructive or or anti or against or... No, it provided some needed gravity. Well, that's the other thing, too, talking about the internal problem versus external problems and whatnot and and raising stakes and this you know, whole idea of that. The stakes are defined by the person experiencing them. And there are there are no, you know, it, it's the needing five dollars could be just as a, more important than needing five hundred dollars, even though five hundred dollars feels like that should be more important. If you really need five dollars, you know, the stakes are there. You have to act and believe that you need those five dollars and you have to. <laughs> portray needing $5 to get the audience to believe you that this person really needs five bucks. If we all took that position, it might not be much of a scene either. You know, there's that improv 101 interpretation of yes end and that we are all just agreeing with each other. We have the same temperament. We have the same approach. We have the same solutions. But Robert McKee said that if you have two or more characters in a scene with the same perspective, then you either combine them or get rid of one of them. Yeah. Sometimes I call those general agreement scenes. And you can do them, but they have very different rules. And I think some people forget <laughs> or, or the rules to make them work aren't always obvious. That can be tricky for and sure. That's why the, sure. the straight person versus the absurd or irrational in the circumstance is compelling, especially if that other person is always on the edge of being convinced, but never fully gives in. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I wonder about this when you're talking about authenticity with regard to humor. So much humor is deflection you know, making light of the situation. It's a defense. So it is by necessity deceptive in that way that these individuals in this elevator, clearly it wasn't necessarily humor that they were starting with, but if you actually buy the premise that three people were 
just having a theoretical conversation as a way of coping with the terror of being in an elevator, then it's actually only art that can potentially, I don't know if it's getting at truth, but you know, I was particularly playing with that in here. Mm. Let me pretend to actually be somebody who's actually frightened in this situation, which would have been the appropriate thing in the first place. You know, it's that it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Yes. Art does let you actually express the truth of the situation in a way that you might not be emotionally mature, mature enough, or it just seems socially awkward to do that in the normal situation. Or is the humor, does art make it worse? The denial <laughs> of on the emotional of art, truth. Right? Yeah, the approach to art. And there's that psychological approach to humor that says that it's a benign violation, right? So that something that appears to be a violation or a threat is then diffused by the humor by revealing it to be benign all the time, sort of like taking the mask off the villain. In this case, it was a real violation or a real threat <laughs> in the elevator. And there's the meta concept of like, we're just in an improv scene and people know that there's no real stakes here, but you get to play with all those layers. And I think you both did that effectively. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> no, no, it, it, yes, it, it's an interesting thing when you start diving into these moments that we're creating. And this idea of, well, it's not that my partner necessarily has to agree with the statement I've made, but agree that it's happening and how they react to this thing happening, how we react to Mark deciding to be this, this nested scared person portraying a scared person. So they aren't scared. How we react to that and acknowledge that can bring attention to it and be it, you know, liking it or not liking it doesn't matter so long as we acknowledge that this is occurring and get on that same side of the absurdity or get on the opposite side of the absurdity and talk about how, how ridiculous it is, which is kind of fun. So much of play is experimentation. Maybe I do actually feel this way. Let me tell a really horrible joke that is in very poor taste. And you're never, as the joke teller, completely sure I think I'm just completely joking. Yo, this is not something that I, but I heard some self-help guru the other day say, oh, don't use sarcasm or humor because the universe doesn't understand sarcasm and it will think you're being serious and then it will manifest that thing in your life. And I just think that's one of the most extreme (laughs) woo-woo concepts out there. Even if you believe in a divine intelligence, why would you grant it this naivete that it doesn't understand sarcasm? Yeah. God is just a genie. Uh, it's oh you fooled me oh (laughs) you wished that you had a million dollars so i made it so you used to have a million dollars oh right right yes if god knows all and sees all it will see through any any sarcasm or or attempt to get around to subvert their will will that will be detected immediately should it exist should they exist Something you mentioned earlier about these benign transactions. I hadn't heard that turn or phrase. Benign violation, yeah. Benign violations. Benign transactions all the day, all the time. Buying a newspaper. <laughs> Buying a cold drink. But this idea, I know you've probably heard about that peekaboo for babies, if they don't fully understand this whole notion that mom isn't gone or dad isn't gone, but they're just behind their hands and that that is, it's actually, oh no, someone is gone. My caregiver is missing. Oh, there they are. And that that is... You know, our first benign violation. And in fact, when we talk about animals playing, like cats playing, why do they chase each other? Well, they're just, they're just getting ready for what they do in the wild. And then it's like, oh, okay. So what games do young humans play? Hide and seek. <laughs> it's like, what are they doing to get it ready for? You know, it's like, <laughs> yes, hiding. 
preparing to get under the blankets, be it a, a real threat, a tiger or some kind of existential threat. This notion of violations is all around us and that we are constantly guarding ourselves against, you know, these perceived violations, these kind of existential violations all, all the time. If I can expand on that. Take my kids out to the woods and, and give them a five minute head start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their choice of weapons. And <laughs> that's how they build character. This is not me starting a scene. Billy, you're you're <laughs> hiding when the terrorists come, hiding behind the couch is not going to work. You got to up your hide and seek skills. Get in the couch. I think this is not me starting a scene should be a line I use on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> if we want to do want to start a scene, you know, maybe Jeremy, I can via the little chat function here, I can send you what I'm going for as a as a thing and maybe you could try Try doing it. Is that cool? I will go for it. I get a suggestion from the audience. I will be sending you. (laughs) I'm actually going to start the scene, but then I'll need you to do that. Okay. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay. Yep. All right. Are we ready, Mark? I've been ready. Okay. (laughs) You're getting the stare, man. You're getting the improviser stare. This has been fantastic. (laughs) Well, um, I went ahead and got everything loaded up into the cabin. Uh, I figure we'll get the... Bill, I know you're trying to do the right thing here and finally take some initiative after this complete mess of a weekend. But let me just say it's a little too late and a little too little. Too little too late is what I'm saying. Mark, we, um, we said we're going to stick up for ourselves here finally. It comes down to, I mean, he's he's doing his best. But I, you went up and loaded everything into the cabin as if that makes up for what he did. I mean, look around. It isn't even cleaned up yet. Well, I just look... I. You got to give me a path to redemption here. <laughs> I mean, I just, uh, I load, I got all of our stuff out, out of the cars. You got, okay. And that's your redemption. Well, it's just because I know the cars outweigh? smell like pee pee and poo poo because of another mistake of mine. And I fully admit that. So I got the stuff loaded out of the, as if you couldn't actually control yourself. I mean, I thought it was a bad idea to, at the quickie mart there, buy a full gallon of milk and drink it. As a road, you know, on the road, like I thought that would be some hindsight's 2020. All right. And I, I, I wanted to make sure we got here on time for an on time check in. So we get as much time as possible. And yeah, I had diary in a garbage bag. Okay. That's what we did. That's what we did. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it. I promise not to do it again. It's I've never heard bill of anyone trapping other people into their own intervention, but you didn't even tell us this was the purpose for us to intervene with you when we came on this trip. I don't need an intervention, y'all. I just... I just oh, now he doesn't need an intervention. Now he doesn't need an intervention. I'm excited. I'm excited to have this weekend, okay? And that enthusiasm got the better of me, got the best of me. I haven't been on a road trip since I was in, like, college. And you you can't just go crazy on the snacks, you know? So mm-hmm. I did. I, mean, I did. I, look, I know, I know you're doing your best here, but you know that you're lactose intolerant. And yet, mm-hmm. I know you keep complaining to me how you just can't resist the big cheeses that you get the whole, you know, giant wedges of cheese. We're in Wisconsin. Come on. I thought it would be funny. It's the guys. That's the most temptation you've ever put yourself in. Aren't we going to sit around the campfire and start cutting farts? I think that's what we're supposed to do on a guy's weekend. So yeah, I, I hit it a little hard. All right. And I'll pull back. I'll pull back. I'll pull all the way back. You can pull back all the way. This is exactly like college. It hasn't changed in 20 years. I haven't farted audibly around anyone but myself 
in those 20 years. All right. I can tell you've been holding that in and it's really corrupted you from the inside out. Look at your divorce, your second divorce, your third divorce, your kids who won't talk to you anymore. The jobs you keep losing, the money you keep borrowing from us because of the jobs you keep losing. This is all going back to your cheese addiction. That is not incorrect. Here's what I'm saying. Let's put Bill's a bad guy to the side. Let's get the fire started. Let's get in there. We got some board games. We got some cards. We got some stakes. Let's just get guys weekending. Okay. So it's not going to be, it's not going to be a mousetrap. Hmm? No, no cheese related board games is what I'm saying. You can pick it. We don't, we do not have mousetrap is available as an option, but you can choose which one. You can choose which game we play. All right. Can you just look at me right now and just tell me honestly? Is that grated Parmesan spilling out of your pockets? I had to put it somewhere. It is not my intention to eat it or save it. Okay. All right. In fact, here, I'll tip it on the ground right now. And that's okay. That is not. Now, technically, because it's aged, it actually doesn't upset my stomach. So, right. The the lactose has been eaten up by the bacteria that aged Parmesan. So let me just say that unequivocally. All right. And Mark Subaru that's up on blocks and all of the tires replaced with wheels of cheese. What's that about? That's about Go Packers. That's about Mark's love of football. And um, I don't have a good explanation. Yeah, I mean, I I, pre- I guess I appreciated that. I didn't. I It's not what I would have chosen. There we go. I think you're a bit of an enabler, Mark, but OK. It's up to you to accept or reject his gesture. Here's my question. How do you like your steaks? Huh? I'm a medium rare myself. Okay. Let's move along. Okay. Fine. Okay. All right. Get out the steaks. I got, we got the steaks. We got the steaks. And sorry, I just need to back up and air out a little bit. Some of your, well, I, you know what? I'll take, I need to take the garbage out. Why did I bring my, the garbage bag into the cabin? That was a terrible idea. I'm going to take it out right now. I think I was just worried about bears and things. Here it is. Here we go. Look, I'm taking it out and take it over to the, look, look. They've got a dumpster chained to the tree. Perfect. Okay. And that can go right in there. That can go right in there. Here's the advantage of me blowing out my colon into a garbage bag in the car. The advantage is we get the whole afternoon. We can go down to the lake, do some fishing, some canoeing. We got the whole afternoon. You're seeing this through the wrong lens. Hey, Bill, Bill what, okay. is, what is that truck out there? Huh? That looks like a milk truck to me. Did you, did you, he is hooking up a hose. Oh, come on now. This is a coincidence. This is, this has to be a coincidence. A a hose of milk is a coincidence. I, I don't know. Look, honestly, do you think some guy on his third divorce being out of work can smell a range of milk truck? This is an incredible coincidence beyond the pale. I'm going to get my cell phone out and take a picture of it because this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. Do you think I set this up? Do you think the entire cabin is now flooded with milk? So I I think we're not going to get our deposit back or stuff, which I carried in earlier. I am willing to drink our way back into the cabin. Oh, okay. Now this is a willing, a generous, I am willing to do that. I think we're all going to pay for this. I will stay outside. I will not. I am willing to do that. Fine. Here's a straw and a bottle of lactate. If this is what makes you happy, then we should support you. Ultimately, even though it's disgusting and I probably uh, shouldn't take I'm up. I'm going to go home myself, but uh, I mean, I have, have to replace the tires on your car. <laughs> yeah. First. Yeah.
I probably shouldn't take up any room in my stomach with the lactate. I should probably keep as much volume available for the milk, I think, in this kind of emergency here. Don't you? Yeah. Well, Bill, I think you realize that your addiction is not going to go away and your tolerance of lactose is unwavering. You know just like you, Bill. Just like you, Bill. The cheese stands alone. You know who else is addicted to milk? Babies. Babies are addicted to milk. And so wow. now you're we're supposed to be sympathetic to you like you're a baby? Well, uh, we all were babies. I was going to ask about the full man diaper outfit, but I felt like that distracted. That was a coincidental novelty outfit that they had at Party City. That it's not a real diaper outfit. It's just kind of plasticky made in china why isn't a real i mean if you just have shat your pants why would you not then if you're gonna put on a diaper outfit make it an, one that's effective it explains the diaper but not the bonnet and the rattle well a i removed my pants before evacuating that's a b i could have gotten the sexy walking diaper outfit i did not i just got thank the you. regular thank you See the diaper and or the rattle and bonnet and baby accoutrement were free. The free party city person included. Why are you guys friends with me? Honestly, what, what do you get from me? What, why are you we're asking? And we're about to walk away now. And okay. I don't know. Well, just, go, just, go. just go. I will stay here with my cabin of milk getting warm, by the way. Slowly mm. getting warm. Yeah, it's and, pretty and, hot out here. It's and curling. you can just go. And I'll just stay here. I'll just stay here. This is abandonment issues, right? Like, are we really going to add to this? I mean, clearly, Bill was deprived of the breast too early. Is that what's going on? So that, you know, now an insatiable trying to make up for that, that little bit of milk that you missed? No, it's very Freudian, but yeah. I can't hear you. I can't hear anything. I'm, I'm, I'm preparing for my feast. And now you're just trying to place a wedge between us. Sorry for the pun, but it really does feel that way. How about we, we mm-hmm. get a roll of cheese and then like you know, some kind of breast and then just see like which one he goes to and to see if this, is it really about the cheese or is it really about the fundamental uh, lack of maternal affection? I'm not sure how to, you know, engineer like a this paper right mache now, breast. I'm open to suggestion on how to I'm the gross this. one. I'm the gross one. Okay. I'm the gross one. It's like uh, the monkey. Uh, does it, the monkey want the food coming from the uh, body made of wires or does it want the warm and fuzzy body that does not have food? You even that? if the mother monkey shakes it. Right. Wow, I didn't know you guys were such objectifiers of women. I'm shocked and appalled. And, oh, okay. Now and, you're just uh, turning it back. I thought this was. I thought we were intervening. I'm. I'm trying to intervene effectively. I'm giving you a good idea on how to how to disambiguate your obvious issues here. There is no ambiguity. There is zero ambiguity. I love dairy products to my own detriment, and I drive those away who can't tolerate it. Okay. Just like Writing, you can't tolerate it. Writing's on the wall and it's curdling and it's starting to smell. That's what's happening to the writing. Well, um, if you two are leaving, I, I want you to I call. I got the wheels back. Really doing this, Jeremy? Are we, are we going to leave him to his, his, uh, I think we have to call his, his bluff. Defeat? And he'll come crawling back to us, belly bloated. All right. This is, this he'll is probably the him. hardest thing I've ever had to do, but, uh, yeah, you're going to, you're going to have to suck all this down yourself. Yeah, that's what I wanted to not, do. Not helping that's, what, you this that's, time. What, that's what I wanted to do all along. So I wanted to do all along. Just call us or text us when you come to your senses. Okay. Reception's not too good up here, but you know, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, it looks like you replaced your phone with a block of cheese. So, okay. However you want to get in touch. You know how hard it was to find a case for that where all the, the holes would line up? 
That was difficult. Okay. Custom made. Well, I just had to go to a lot of malls, a lot of kiosks, many a kiosk. Yeah, we'll stop there. We'll stop there. Uh, I just wanted to see where that one was going to go. Hey, I'm totally fine with people leaving. People leaving movies and books and plays all the time. It can happen in improv too. Uh, who, know, who knows what I would? Who knows what I would do? Immediately regret my decision or try to live? Try to live in that world with this <laughs> pumper truck of of dairy. <laughs> hey, right. listeners, please write an essay on mm-hmm. what you think this character would do next and how you think this would work out for him. My daughter asked me to to make up a little story for one of her shows with the chat GPT and it left it kind of open-ended. And then we wrote like, who was the actual killer? And it said, I don't know. I just made that story up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Chat GPT. Now you make up the act. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that speaks to a lot, the way a lot of improvisers think too. So we, it, yeah, we had a game going there. We kept raising the stakes to more and more points of absurdity that probably at the apex with the truck backing up and hooking okay. the hose into the, yeah. That would have taken some time too. And, and, yeah, and yeah. Certainly have interacted with the driver as, as that. Uh, I was more picturing as if there was a milk truck shadowing us this whole time. This whole time. Not oh, that okay. it would immediately inject, but I like that upping the, upping the stakes. Look, I need you to follow us. All right. But we can't leave us. No, my friends can't know you're behind us. What? No, we're back. Dude, in just do it. Okay. Keep getting pulled back. I, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I had a lot of fun with that one. I could hear my, the voices of my improv teachers of, of years past saying we may have. Uh, Mr. Ending. <laughs> what did you think about that exercise? Difficult? Easy? I wasn't sure if you wanted me to do it once or repeatedly. We will find out as the scene goes on if that's who you are. You know what I'm saying? Okay. We'll start with once, but then and as the scene unfolds and we understand who, each, who we are, it may happen often. Because it, it kind of makes me look like a jerk improviser if I do it repeatedly. <laughs> well, if your character is, a, you know, I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing that, you know, I don't mind. I don't mind. I think I can guess what the exercise was then, which is to start out in basic opposition to at least the other character's attitude, if not the entire scenario. Even more aggressive (laughs) to not let me finish talking. Ah, And believe it or not, that doesn't necessarily mean aggressiveness, but in order to, well, I'll, I'll We'll throw it over to Jeremy. In order to cut me off, what do you have to do? I just have to start talking in the middle of your sentence. Which for an audience member or another improviser who doesn't know that that's the intent, it kind of seems like, wow, Jeremy's just stepping all over him. He's bulldozing him, you know, steamrolling is these, these terms that we use. It's especially difficult for me. I keep talking about like this type of improv background and different improv schools are almost like religions, Mark, you know, and we get so steeped in our ways of like, <laughs> it's so counter, it's so counter to the type of improv training I've had over the couple decades that, um, what kind of character does it create? Well, yeah, it's antagonistic. There is an emotional state that is required to cut somebody off. Mm. You know, it's not just, oh, by the way, it's like getting in there and forcing yourself to get in there. I really enjoyed you. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be against. You can be excited about what it, whatever it is, this thing I'm, I'm going to say. Yeah. Is, yes, but it, br- it, it brings out that emotion. It brings out that intent. And like, I think so often... It's easy to for improv to just to be clever and that in, in, intentedness goes a million miles to making our stuff watchable and interesting and whatnot. Bringing back to imposter syndrome, there's this interesting dynamic in improv in that we are each ourselves as artists and we're each our characters for those intents. And there might be cross purposes in the sense that 
the artist who's improvising wants something to happen, but the character doing something else wants something to be sabotaged. And we all experience that, even if we're not actors or improvisers. When you watch a show and somebody gets into trouble, and main character gets into trouble, and you're like, oh, I wish that didn't happen. But if that instinct that we have for like, oh, I wish that person wasn't being kidnapped or the terrorists weren't attacking, that wish were actually to come true, there would be no movie or show. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's always this inherent tension the way that we watch or experience a dramatic enactment, at least. Yeah, yeah. The imposter syndrome immediately made me think of that kind of scene start because you're essentially calling me an imposter. It was what you ended up doing. Projecting. One thing I found, Jeremy, that you said that Bill was inviting us, had suckered us into coming on his intervention. And so I was really intrigued by that and wondering if if that was going to somehow come back of, you know, you have a problem. You won't admit you have a problem, but you do know you have a problem. And so you've gotten us into this situation where we're forced to confront your problem. That's existentialist bad faith. Is what that, <laughs> it's what that is, is, you know, playing these, these games because you're denying to yourself what you really want, what you really are. The conscious part of you in denial is it won't admit it, but I'm, I'm implying that there is some bad faith intent in there. Right. Yes. The difficulty with actually bringing in that term, which is from, from Jean Paul Sartre is because he famously sort of did not believe in the unconscious. <laughs> That you are, mm-hmm. you are completely responsible. If you're, if you're deluding yourself, you, I mean, you could say, well, part of you knows, part of you doesn't, but like, don't take that literally. There is no underlying psychic machinery, as Freud would say, where right. you literally keep things from yourself. No, it's the thing that you're more familiar with where you choose to ignore. It's right there. You could turn at any point, but it's an act of will that you are willfully deny. You know, denial is is always a willful act for Sartre, as opposed to there's a Nietzschean thread of of bad faith too. If Sartre had a, a scientific proof of that, he, he certainly didn't present it. <laughs> what's what's the Nietzschean bad faith? I think it's related to that that will to power in the sense that there is this kind of sublimated drive that many people won't realize and and fully actualize self-awareness that is driving their behavior, whereas they profess to have certain virtues or certain positive intent, whereas there might be something darker or more powerful, depending on which Nietzsche you're reading at the moment. (laughs) Yes. Somebody like Socrates, like, I'm just trying to get at the truth. Well, no, actually, what you're doing is trying to exert control over a chaotic world by saying we need to transcend the changeable appearances and get to some stable perfection, that that is just weird wish fulfillment. That is, <laughs> that is uh, a denial of the obvious in favor of, you're right, it's a, it's a control strategy. That That's what the, the will to power comes down to, is that even if you are, oh no, I'm peaceful, I would never dominate anybody else, you're probably, that itself is a strategy by which you are trying to take control of your situation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this, does it ever end? I mean, can we get one of those things we can keep? No, well, your control strategy is to explain to me what my control strategy is. <laughs> yeah, I think they would say that if you at least admit it and own it, that that's a step toward being more actualized and authentic. Okay, okay. But it is, uh, you know, ultimately a matter of self-development, right? The artistic Socrates working on himself, we could try to help other people. We could point out where they think they're deluding themselves or being inconsistent or something, but we're not ultimately in their skin. And it's sort of kind of really their job to deal with that. 
Is that even, I don't know how exactly, Nietzsche said a lot of nasty things about a lot of people. I don't know. How yeah, I'm not, I'm not endorsing, <laughs> I'm not endorsing Nietzsche across the board. I just think he was very interesting enough to write a musical about. So uh, the, this is all just kind of swimming in those waters and then drying ourselves off. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's also like the, the Felix Quattari ideas of subjectivity that he called polyphonic and which is just a really kind of fancy word for saying that there are many different factors, social and political and, and ethical and psychological, as you know, he was a psychoanalyst, that drive us into oversimplify our motives or mm-hmm. our subjectivity is also, I don't think he used the term bad faith, but I would say it's a, it's a gesture of bad faith. Do you ever feel like, you know, if somebody is, if you're trying to have a really personal conversation with someone or, you know, oh, are you, you feeling depressed? Well, why are you depressed? I feel if I try to articulate that, I'm probably making something up. Mm. Like it's probably just mostly physiological and what, what was going on, what I ate for breakfast that day. And, and of course, if I reach back far enough, I'm going to find some stuff. Mm-hmm. But in terms mm-hmm. of like, is there a truth of the matter of what mm. caused your mood right now, for instance? No, this is actually part of the creative, the process of creating yourself is how we understand ourselves is by making up reasonable theories of like why did i do that thing why do i eat this cheese all the time mm-hmm. yeah, there's a theory of mind question there too and somebody's depressed in the moment they might take offense at saying that it's purely physiological or based on what they ate they have some trauma they have some other things that are conflicting they have some imbalances in their brain however they have interpreted it but that's a narrative as well so i'm a you know for example i'm an executive coach so i talk to people all the time about things that they're challenged with it's not therapy by any means but it is an interesting exploration of trying to draw out people's motives and to be more forward thinking as opposed to the more digging into the past of therapy. That sounds like okay. a good thing to okay. hear a little more about <laughs> in the after talk. Patreon.com slash philosophy improv. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> We've reached the end here. This has been a very improv weighted thing such that the philosophy I feel was more trying to understand improv and how improv fits in with they were so locked together but there must be a winner it's philosophy versus improv so jeremy as the you at least get the first vote maybe we can uh (laughs) do you feel like of the things that were brought in here can you even disambiguate them was there a winner between the philosophy lesson and the improv lesson i'm going to toss my vote to philosophy this time just because we were kind of working toward a philosophy of improv so it Mm. seemed to subsume the whole thing what do you think bill as someone who struggles with self-esteem and imposter syndrome, well, of course, in, uh, philosophy won. Of course, philosophy won. All right. Well, I, I would <laughs> have voted for... Never win. Improv doesn't deserve it. It never deserves to win. And when it does win, it's a fluke. <laughs> they're, just being, they're just being nice to me. They're just, they just think that'll cheer me up. That's the only reason why improv ever wins. Oh, man. Well, then let's leave. <laughs> it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do, Bill, but we're going to leave you with that loss. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> and say... Goodbye to the listeners. Thank you, Jeremy, for, for uh, coming on. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Yeah. Plug the book one more time. Oh, you want me to plug yes. the book? Yes. Okay, so here it is. The Accomplished Creative, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Forge Courage, and Tap into Limitless Creativity. Guaranteed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's well, uh, Jeremy, jeremyrichards.com. All right, I learned a lot from you folks today. I learned a lot from y'all. And... I learned nothing. Scene. <laughs> <I'm kidding>. Scene. <laughs> <laughs> if you
you enjoyed this, get more at philosophyimprov.com. If you're hearing this on the Partially Examined Life feed, please go subscribe directly to the Philosophy versus Improv podcast so you won't miss any episodes and you'll see our whole back catalog of episodes in that feed. While you're on the Apple Podcasts site subscribing, please leave a nice rating and review of this podcast. Better yet, avoid all the ads. Here are post-game discussions for nearly every episode and experience the video for this and most other recent episodes at patreon.com slash philosophy improv. Thanks so much for listening. Baby, I should sell my soul. 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 Baby, I should sell my soul.